Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Celebrating my wife's 32nd birthday. Wait, how old were you when we got married? 32, right? 33, 34. Yeah. That's why I'm celebrating at 34. Praise the Lord. What a great wife. What a great wife I have. Thank God. He who finds a woman, finds a wife, finds a good thing. You're my good thing, baby. Happy birthday. Okay, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Some of you are as fond of this passage as I am. But let's begin in verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteousness of righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. (sighs) There's no doubt that this is the world we live in today. Interestingly, it was the world Paul lived in 2,000 years ago. And this is a passage that every Christian needs to be familiar with. It really does describe and uh, a lot of what we see, answer a lot of questions, especially that first part that we read about God having made his existence obvious to everybody. 
Paul is writing here that those who disbelieve in God disbelieve in God because they want to disbelieve in God. They want to believe there is no God. Not because there's a lack of evidence, but because they decide what they want to be true and then look for ways to make it seem true. Here's a telling quote from Aldous Huxley. You guys probably remember him from high school or college. Brave New World, right? And uh, here's what he said. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting those people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. In other words, I knew what I wanted to do, which was to engage in every form of sex and, and every, at every opportunity that I wanted, and I had to free myself from the moral restraints, so therefore I decided that the world had no meaning. Then I went out and looked for reasons to support that. Now, not all atheists are that honest, or perhaps they're not that self-aware. You know, Sunday, Lord permitting, we will be talking about the great end-time apostasy. And when I say Lord permitting, I mean I meant to talk about it last Sunday. He might send us a different direction. The great falling away. And one of the questions is, is this a case of genuine believers leaving the faith? You know, we hear preachers talk about the great end time harvest. Is that what's going to happen? Or is it a great end time falling away? It's both. It's both. Are genuine believers going to leave the faith or is it nominal Christians who just quit playing the game? There's an excellent book, I've referenced it once or twice, called uh, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Uh, He's considered by some to be the modern day C.S. Lewis. Uh, He's good. He's not that good. Uh, (laughs) But he points out that there is this panic uh, among believers. And this... uh, when we talk about the, the number of people declaring their atheism, and we're talking now about polls that are taken, uh, people who self-identify as Christians, and it's never been at a lower number than it is today. You know, in my lifetime, my high school, college years, something between 90 and 95% of people self-identified as Bible-believing Christians. Now, I knew as a Bible-believing Christian that most of them hadn't read their Bibles, <laughs> And, and that I wouldn't categorize them as born again, but people self-identified as that because we're a Christian culture. And now it's something, it's dipped now to about 70, 75%, which is still a majority, but it's falling, right? 
Uh, and there's uh, and Tim Keller talks about this panic that look at the number of people who are leaving the faith, and he's saying that this is all this really is is um, it's a removal of this kind of pseudo Christianity, this cultural Christianity, and all we're seeing now is a polarization. There's no more gray area. You used to have some hardcore Christians on one end of the spectrum, some and a handful of hardcore. Uh, atheists or disbelievers on the other end and a lot of people who said yeah we believe and he says now those people in the middle are either having to decide do we really believe or do we really disbelieve and so yeah you've got a lot of people who are embracing christianity and a lot of people who are saying why pretend anymore is this the great apostasy we'll be talking a little bit about that on sunday but interestingly also what we have witnessed in recent years is the rise of militant atheism Uh, much was made back around 2006 of the new atheism. How many of you have heard of the four horsemen of the non-apocalypse or the four horsemen of atheism? Anybody ever heard that term besides me? We're talking about uh, Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, and the other guy. Kind of like the three tenors, right? Pavarotti, Domingo, and the other one. Anybody know the other one? Yeah, me neither. Anyway, these guys, uh, and Dawkins is probably the most famous one, they believe they are honor-bound or duty-bound to oppose Christianity and all religion because it holds society back. Dawkins quite famously said that if you can't reach these religious people, and let's face it, 99% of the time he's talking about religious people. He's talking about Christians. He's speaking, he's saying these things in Christian or post-Christian societies. And he says, if you can't reach them with logic, the best thing you could do is ridicule them, make fun of them, mock them openly. Ravi Zacharias points that out, and he says, and I agree with him, and I would like to buy him a ticket to put that philosophy in practice in Saudi Arabia. Because what do you think would happen to Richard Dawkins if he mocked Islam openly in Saudi Arabia? He can easily say what he says in this society. Because it's Christian virtue that protects him and honors his value as a human being. I do question the motives of some of these people. There was a, uh, years ago, this is going back to 2010 or 11, a good friend of mine who's a fellow pastor said, hey, there's a, there's a page or a group you need to join on Facebook one of my friends is the moderator, and it's called Deep Thoughts. And they talk about these philosophical arguments. Yeah, I know, I'm thinking of the goofy Saturday Night Live stuff, Deep Thoughts, right? Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. If you're in a time machine and you're eating corn on the cob, I don't think it's going to make a difference one way or the other. But the point is this, corn on the cob is good, isn't it? That's Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Anyway, Deep Thoughts was the name of this page, and it was about philosophy and wrestling with these deep issues. And so I joined, and I get accepted. And, uh, and one of the first posts I see is from this woman who says, 
uh, I'm really, and I'm paraphrasing here, this has been a number of years ago. She says, I've really been wrestling with uh, coming out as an atheist, you know, my, embracing my skepticism, but it's scary. The, in this society, uh, the backlash against being a skeptic is so great. And, and, I, and I commented, and I basically said, really, do you think so? I'd be, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a time or a place where skepticism has been more celebrated. That's all I said. And within 10 minutes, there are at least 10 more responses. Hello, Scott Millis. Welcome to the group. I see from your profile picture that you are a pastor or a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor at the time. I see from your uh, profile that you are a youth pastor. If it were up to me, you would be executed. Somebody else came back and said, I think execution is a little extreme, but certainly prison time is called for. And somebody else came back and said, you're getting a little out of hand. But people like this do need to be re-educated, and they need to be at least slapped on the wrist and warned against raising, against infecting young minds with the poison of religion. And, if, and repeat offenders ought to be imprisoned. Wow, indeed. Deep, deep thoughts. These are deep thinkers. And I'm thinking, what are they so? And all I did was say, do you really think it's that dangerous to come out as a skeptic in this day and age? Nobody answered that. They just said, oh, I see you're a pastor. You should die. (laughs) Or a youth pastor. And the Bible tells me in Romans chapter 1 that that there is an ulterior motive. That people disbelieve in God, not because of lack of evidence, but because they want the world not to have meaning. Now, among their more potent arguments is the idea of the immorality of God. The God who would... Uh, you know, one of the more famous charges is how could a loving God, how could a good God, how could a moral God order his people to destroy every man, woman, and child and animal in the cities, in the conquest narratives? How do you justify slavery in the Bible? How do you justify the mistreatment of women? Polygamy. And then leading people to say things like this. And then when you, when you take some of the more obvious things. Well, look, God obviously advocated genocide, slavery, and misogyny. And these are things we can all, in here right now, we can agree those things are wrong. We can't agree that God really did order, uh, uh, approve of those things. We, we wouldn't put those labels on them, right? Right? But since we would disagree with genocide, slavery, and misogyny, then they say, how can you then simply accept that God would be against? And then you name some things people are struggling with today. This is hateful. And here's the thing you've heard. I know you've heard it. Because I've heard it a hundred times. I could never serve a God like that. I could never love a God like that. I can't respect a God like that. And along the same line, uh, the other, I guess the other side of that coin is this. 
And this is specifically directed at the demands God makes of us concerning our lifestyles. As long as it's not hurting anyone else, there's no reason not to do it. Now that argument is flawed in about a million ways. And I don't have time to go into them tonight. We can sometime, maybe next week. But right now I just want you to look at John chapter 6. I referenced this during communion on Sunday. And I know I've talked about it before, but I keep being drawn back to it. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. And this is right after Jesus was talking about, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. In verse 60, therefore many of his disciples, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Is it, the spirit who ge- it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Now that's a reference to verse 44 where he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up in the last day. Verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you? Alice, stop there. Stop at 69. When people say, I could never serve a God like that, I want you to look first at this. In verse 64, when he said, there are some of you who did not believe, for Jesus knew at the beginning who they were who did not believe. And then in 65, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted or given to him by my Father. You know, Wesley had a commentary on that. Here was his take on that verse. And it is given to those only who will receive it on God's terms. In other words, when we're looking at God and we're trying to judge him by the things he's done, the things he said, the demands he's made, and we come to a conclusion, it's hard for me to serve a God like that, or I won't serve a God like that. We're making ourselves to be the God of God or the judge of God, right? If we're going to receive God, if we're going to receive salvation, we have to receive it on his terms. And there is a sense in verse 44 that we referred to that what Jesus is saying is this. When he says, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. Now the, now the Calvinist loves this verse because it basically says, it, this, this, it does away with free will. Nobody's going to come to Christ unless the Father chooses him and draws him to Christ. Now there's an element of truth there. And I always point that out, you know, with Peter's confession of the Christ. 
You know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And Jesus is saying there, you didn't get that from me. God had to reveal that to you. And I say, if they didn't get it from Jesus, they're not going to get it from us. We need to pray to the Father that he reveals himself to people. This is God drawing people to Jesus. And I still believe all that. But what the real sense of this is, when Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father draw him, is this. If you are not, people say this, I like the Jesus of the New Testament. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, if you find the God of the Old Testament offensive and, the G- and me attractive, sooner or later you will reject me. If you find the God of the Old Testament offensive and the Jesus of the New Testament attractive, sooner or later you will reject Jesus. Because if you're, Jesus is saying, if you're not attracted to God, you're not attracted to me. The law that offends people so badly is the law that Jesus affirmed with every breath. In verse 62, he said, what then if you should see, in verse 61, he said, does this offend you? 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And he's saying here, if you see, when you see clear proof of who I am, then what are you going to do with the words you've heard that have bothered you? Are you still going to reject me? He's talking, if you see me rise into the clouds, doing something obviously supernatural, obviously godlike, are you still going to reject me on the basis of words that I've said that you can't get your puny heads around? You don't like God because of how he has revealed himself or because you disagree with his version of morality? Guess what? He's the only God we have. He's the only God there is. Let's start with that. He is God, and we have to take him and his word as we find them. If there is something in all of that that offends us, let's assume one of two things. One, we might have misunderstood the text. Or, and or, there might be something wrong with us. It's usually that. I've talked about this a number of times, many times in reference to the tithe. And whether you see that connection now is neither here nor there. But when Jesus was talking about the law, he said, you have heard it said, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you hate somebody enough to call them a fool or worthless or empty-headed, in your heart you're already a murderer. What's Jesus saying? He's saying don't pat yourself on the back because you're able to rein in these feelings. I see this a lot these days. I see it a lot. What's so hard? We don't need religion What is so hard about just not being a jerk? Or, and I'm being, that's the G-rated version, all right? You don't need, you don't need to memorize commandments. You don't need to memorize scripture. Just don't be a jerk. 
What's so hard about treating people nice? What's so hard about not doing this or not doing that? But it is hard, isn't it? And this is what Jesus is talking about. He says, the problem is not, you're patting yourself on the back because you've never followed through with these desires. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, the problem is those desires are there in the first place. Well, it's not a full-blown desire, but you thought about it. I didn't create you to think about that. I didn't create you to hate or even dislike your brother. I didn't create you to lust after every woman on the planet. So don't pat yourself on the back for not following up on that lust. There's something wrong with you. It's the sin nature. And so when we see something, God says, we're like, that offends me. And, we, and we're going to think we're right and God's wrong? This is what's so beautiful about David. You talk about a man after God's own heart. We read the law. And we look at the law today and we're like, oh, how restrictive. Uh, how repulsive. How offensive. How narrow. And David's like, man, I love your law. How love I your law. It's my meditation all day. The law of the Lord is perfect. Sweeter than honey. The law. He's talking about the law. And we live under a new and better covenant, don't we? Look at uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. It's one of my favorite little passages in the Old Testament. And this is uh, after Habakkuk has observed, you know, he's observed some things that are going on and God has spoken, told him how (coughs) he's going to raise up an adversary to judge Israel, Judah. And Habakkuk is like, but we're your people and this is an evil people and this is wrong. He lays out his whole argument why this doesn't make sense. You know, if you wanted to generalize it, it's the whole thing. Evil, why, why is there evil and suffering? If God is good, if God loves us, and God is all-powerful, why is there evil and suffering in the world? It doesn't make sense. And then chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. I just love that because this is Habakkuk saying, here's how I feel. Here's the way I see it. But I already know God doesn't see it that way. He just hasn't told me exactly how he sees it. So I'm going to stand here and I'm going to listen. And I'm interested to see how I respond when God tells me how wrong I am. Can we be that humble? If we see something or just sense something. And here's what it all boils down to. Yeah, I know that's wrong. But either, but I do that, and I know I'm not that bad. Or, I love somebody who does that. And it's hard for me to believe that God is against them. Let's start with this. God is for you. He's for your loved ones. He's absolutely for us. 
The reason he condemns certain things is because they are harmful to us. The reason we we rebel against that condemnation is because we cannot immediately see how harmful those things are. We don't have God's perspective. Can we trust him enough to stand on the rampart and say, let me check my heart and see what I'm going to say when God tells me what's wrong with that? God's a good God. He loves us. And here in the middle of this world that is telling us we don't need God, we don't need a code, we don't need a moral law, because as long as you're not hurting anybody else, what's the big deal? And how can you serve a narrow, uh, how can you serve a God who uh, advocates the things that the God of the Old Testament does? We can recognize that in the middle of all that confusion, he's a good God. Because we read the whole story. Now there are still questions. And if you have, I've brought up some examples tonight. And if you have specific questions about those, I have answers. It just wasn't the purpose of this message tonight. So email me, talk to me. I'll tell you what I think about those things. Or you can request a sermon and I'll talk about those things. Not everybody is as interested in those things as everybody else. But meanwhile... The big picture is that God loves us and that God went to great lengths to buy us back to himself. To make a way for us to be 100% right with him so that we can not, so that we can be in his presence and enjoy his presence. But when I say he made a way, I mean that he made a way. He didn't make a hundred ways. He didn't make two ways. Jesus is the way. And Jesus is the one. The Jesus, the one we're all attracted to, said this. I am the way. The truth. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's only one way. There's no life except through Jesus Christ. And the door he made leads through the cross. So if there's anybody here tonight, if you've never made that decision, if you've never recognized that, maybe you've been struggling. Hey, there's some things that uh, haven't made sense to me about God. Maybe some things have offended you about God. Maybe you've been offended because Christians have misrepresented God. Can you forget that a second? And just focus on the fact that God, the creator of the universe, the one who made us, loves us. He knows you better than anybody else knows you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And he still loves you like nobody else loves you. And he said, I gave my son your sin just like every other human being who has ever lived since Adam. Your sin has condemned you. The wages of sin is death. God cannot allow sin in his presence. So we're eternally separated from our creator. But God said, here's the deal. Since the wages of sin is death, I'm going to pay those. But instead of paying those wages to you, I'm going to pay them to Jesus. God the Son. He's going to take on flesh, take on the form of man, and he's going to go to the cross and he's going to pay that penalty. He's going to die your death. All the sin, your sin, my sin, 
is going to be laid on him. And God's judgment fell on Jesus at the cross. And if we look at that, if we just humble ourselves and say, all right, I can't pay it myself. I can't believe anybody would love me enough to pay it. But since you did, I confess that I need a Savior. God says, you need a Savior. You know what else you need? You need a Lord. It's you being in charge of your life that has brought you to where you are today. Let me be in charge. Nobody loves you as much as I do, including you. Nobody knows you as well as I do. Nobody has a better plan than I have for your life. Will you let me be in charge? That's what lordship is. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You want that salvation? You want that eternal life? Tonight is your night. Now is your moment. I'm going to pray a quick prayer. We're going to sing a song. You want to give your heart to Jesus? Come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for even the hard stuff, Lord, and open our eyes to the point, to the places we, we see that, that uh, rub us the wrong way, that might offend us, Lord. Show us where we're wrong. Show us where you're right. Show us just how good you are and remind us, Lord, that you are wiser than we are. In the meantime, Lord God, I thank you for every person that's here tonight, and I pray that if there's even one person who doesn't know you as Savior, doesn't know you as Lord, doesn't know you as Father, that they would come to know you tonight. Holy Spirit, do what only you can and convict the sinner of sin, of need for a Savior, and grant them, Lord God, the, the humility, the wisdom, and the boldness to come now and receive that free gift of eternal life in Jesus' name. And all the believers said... Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.